All right. Um, am I on? No. No. Microphone. There we go. Okay. All right. Let's go. Everybody's find their seats. So just a reminder about Chafer Seminary Spring Registration. You can go to chafer.edu, and you can find out what courses are being offered if there's anything that uh, you would uh, like to like to learn more about. And then I'll be teaching uh, History of Doctrine this semester, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. on Monday nights. So it's a two-hour course, so we'll go 7 to 7.50 and take a break, come back and go from roughly uh, 8 or 8.05 to 9.50, and or 8.05 8. to 8.50, and then that's it. So uh, it'll be a good Good material. And um, not this Saturday, but a week from Saturday, we have our men's prayer breakfast at 7.30, and then the deacons meeting following, and then also the Chafer Pastors Conference is up. And we're starting to get a number of registrations and um, deposits for the Israel trip, so that's great. All right, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we can come together tonight just to uh, fellowship around your word, that we can focus upon uh, the gospel, understanding it more clearly, uh, recognizing what we need to be equipped with in order to be able to uh, clearly, faithfully present the gospel to children, grandchildren, neighbors, co-workers, friends, anyone that we have the opportunity to uh, speak with. Father, we pray, too, for Ukraine. We pray for the safety of the uh, people we know, the missionaries we support there, the pastors who are uh, taking your word down to the front lines. And we are so thankful that we have great opportunities to in this war to give people who have uh, no real hope, nothing to uh, help them grasp, grapple with, and deal with the issues that come from living in a, a war-torn country. And so there's a lot of opportunities for the gospel. And as we continue to print booklets to send over there in other languages, we pray that we can get all these things done, printed, moved, transported, distributed. We just pray for that. Now, Father, we pray for us that we can focus, concentrate tonight as we study your word, and that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 1, which is where we will end up in a little bit, but before that, we'll have some review. We are looking at the gospel, asking the question, what, does, what is the gospel? And the methodology is to look at the noun, which is translated gospel, which is 
evangelion, and the verb evangelizo, which are where we get our word uh, evangelism and evangelist and evangelizing all come from those words. So what does that mean? And the main meaning of the word, which we saw, was it means to proclaim good news. And yet, when we look at a lot of translations, some of the modern ones try to be more consistent, but a lot of them just translated as preached. And we, I've, I've said this before, we have a problem with understanding preaching and teaching. We do not understand the difference between preaching and teaching like it is a, like we see in the scripture. Proclamation, Caruso, or proclamation of good news, Evangelizo, have to do with communicating the gospel. Teaching has to do with explaining the meaning of the text in order to help us uh, recognize where we in our thinking are conformed to the world so that we can be transformed. We can flush out the human viewpoint and the many ideas and beliefs and dearly held um, beliefs that we have that are not biblical and be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That, to me, that verse is the spiritual life. It tells us what the purpose of the church is, that plus Ephesians uh, 4, 11, and 12, that the gift of pastor-teacher is given to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So I pointed out from the very beginning that answering this question may seem simple to you, and you all, because you have been well taught, are able to give a fairly good, at least a B-plus, rendition of the gospel. But it's amazing how many seminary professors or students and in different schools just don't get it. And they can't even write a decent academic article explaining the gospel. So we have to understand this as as believers, understand what the text says. And when the text is talking about the apostles or their associates, doing evangelizo, in other words, proclaiming the good news, we look at those passages to find out what is it that they said? What did they think was important? What were the key ideas that they communicated? And so that's what we've been doing is going through Acts and looking at those passages. So we've learned several things. We've learned, for example, in in Acts 5.42, This is early on. This is probably within a month or two of the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the church. And what was happening was the apostles were going daily in the temple and in every house, and they did not cease teaching and proclaiming the good news about Jesus as the Messiah. I think that's just just a tremendous summary. Jesus is the Messiah. There's content to that term. He is the promised and prophesied one throughout the whole Old Testament. So in a verse like this, we just, we're just getting a summation, not all of the details. But in the New King James and other passages, it translates it as, uh, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus. And if you go into certain subgroups of Christians in our, in our culture, uh, that have a real preaching 
type of emphasis. That's really referring to an oratorical style. The biblical term is not talking about an oratorical style. It's talking about the content that is being proclaimed. And so you go to these uh, subgroups, Pentecostals, Charismatics, Baptists, uh, some uh, some independents, depending on their background, and you may or may not get good content, but it's the style that matters. And style is not necessarily bad, but that's not what the Bible is emphasizing here. It's emphasizing it's emphasizing content, but the presentation of the content should be done well and should be presented. So what we saw as we look through Acts 5 is that there were six basic elements emphasized there in terms of the, the verb evangelizo. First was that the angel described the message as a message of life, all the words of this life. And again and again, we'll see that it's a message. It's the word uh, the word of the a word of good news, and it uses that word logos. But I think that in these contexts, it's not should not be translated word that's too rigid and literal. It should be the message about the about this life. All you know, the, all the the message of this life. See the resurrection and ascension are stated and mentioned in in uh, five thirty and thirty one. Uh, repentance for Israel is mentioned, but not repentance from sin. And as I pointed out, and it was interesting, I have a, um, some of you may recognize the name Ron Brightwell. He was assistant pastor at Baraka back in the late 60s, early 70s. And his son Don is the head chaplain at some pr- state prisons in Colorado. And for at least 10 years, they have a closed-circuit television there, and he cycles through there our current classes, and they are all everybody in the prison gets to watch Philippians. So you can give a little shout-out to all the prisoners there, and they're learning and they're growing, and Don said it's that they've really been enjoying this little sub-series on the gospel. It's really helped them understand what the Bible says is true about the gospel. So uh, that's important. And so many, so many people in certain seminaries, in fact, it turns out Don uh, went to um, a Phoenix Seminary, which is where, and I mentioned Wayne Grudem before, which is where Wayne Grudem is the president. I wasn't president when, when Don was there, but he is now, and he's the one who wrote the book on uh, five ways that the free grace gospel diminishes the gospel. And it's just, it's not only poor scholar, poor theology, but it, the book has too many factual errors in it about what different free grace people teach and what they believe and how they articulate it. So it's, it, it's, it's really not well done. But he always, every time he reads repentance in the text, when he explains what the text is saying, it's always repentance from sin. And there's a lot of people who think that when they see the word repentance, that's what they think, repentance from sin. And part of the problem is if you look repentance up in an English dictionary, it says remorse, uh, feeling sorry for your sin. So this is a problem. That's not what the Greek word means. And it has its roots in Deuteronomy Chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. 
Uh, forgiveness of sin is emphasized in Acts 5.31 as the focal point of the message, but it's all grounded on the death of Christ. That's always, seems to always be mentioned. And there it just refers to the fact whom you, that is a Jewish leader, is murdered by hanging on a tree. And Acts 5.42, the good news is proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. The Gospel of John. John says in John 20.31, these, referring to these signs, the miracles that he highlights in the Gospel, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the what? The Messiah. Christos, the Greek word where we get our word Christ, comes from the, is a translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, the anointed one. Christos in Greek means anointed one also. So there he says that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And when we look at what I taught on, on Tuesday night, talking about the importance of the name, we see that the name of Jesus, Yeshua, means Savior. But it, it, because that tells us a lot about his essence and his mission, but it tells us more than that. The, the, the idiom in the name of has to do with more than just understanding the label or what the label might mean. It means understanding the essence of the person, who Jesus is. And so you have content there that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Now, the sign that he just referred to in the context is resurrection. So in the context, it's related to the death and the resurrection of Christ. So the gospel is not given when you're ignoring the death and the resurrection of Christ or understanding who he is, which would indicate his deity. Go back and read John 1, the preface to the gospel, John 1, 1 through 18. And in the beginning was the word. That's Christ. It's clear by the time you get to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right there it tells you He's eternal, He's deity. So that's who He is. You can't separate the God-man from the gospel. You can't separate His death or resurrection from the gospel. So it doesn't have to be understood. A three-year-old can understand at the level of a three-year-old and get it. A four-year-old can't. They're not going to have to write a 400-page dissertation on the hypostatic union. But they have to grasp that Jesus is the one who has the ability to pay for my sins and that, that he died and rose from the dead. And their concept of some of those words is going to be pretty, pretty limited. But they get it. They get the core of that message. Okay. So in Acts 8.12, we went there, and as we looked at uh, Philip proclaiming the good news to the Samaritans, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news, as he evangelized them about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, see, there's that phrase again, the name of Jesus Christ. It summarizes who he is. And the kingdom of God, that was something they would not have known because they were Samaritans. So he's teaching them about the kingdom, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Davidic king, who will bring in the kingdom, but it's been postponed because the Jews rejected it. And that's important because he understands his audience. Okay, that's something else. We should understand 
the people that we're talking to. What's their background? So that you may even need to get to know somebody a little bit before you can effectively communicate the gospel to them because you need to understand a little bit about where they're coming from. Uh, this is essential. Anybody who is going to be a missionary in another culture, it could even be a, another culture that's as similar as Canada or England or Australia, but there are differences. You have to understand what those differences are. And any good missionary worth its salt is going to go someplace, learn the language, and every language communicates something uh, about the culture in a different way so that uh, that affects the language, shapes how they think in many ways. So you, he, he understands he's speaking to Samaritans, so he's got to shape the understanding in terms of their background knowledge. And he talks about the name of Jesus Christ, that is who he is, the God-man, his essence, and his qualifications to be Messiah and Savior. Then we looked at uh, Peter and Cornelius, and Peter is over on this circle at Joppa, which is a port. It's still there. It's surrounded by Tel Aviv now. And so he go, he's in Joppa, staying with Simon the Tanner. There's a, uh, a vision first is described in Caesarea where uh, there's a vision given to uh, Cornelius, who's a centurion, to send some men down and to get Peter in Joppa and to bring him back. And so he sends them at the, just before they get there. Peter has a vision. God gives him a vision to, sh- to demonstrate that God has now declared what is unclean clean. And so he shouldn't have any uh, problems going to the house of a Gentile, which would have been a problem for Peter if he hadn't had that vision. So we get into that whole section in Acts 10 and 11. With Cornelius, there's the proclamation of peace. The focus there, remember earlier, the focus was on what? It was on forgiveness of sin, on the message of life. Here it's on reconciliation uh, toward God, and that that reconciliation with God is uh, through Jesus Christ. We also see the emphasis on his person, that he is Lord, which doesn't mean as the Lordship Salvation Gospel says that you have to accept him as Lord of everything in your life. Can't do that as an unbeliever. Oh, yeah, that's right. They believe that regeneration precedes faith. So you've already been uh, regenerated by then. See, they get things backwards. Believing he is Lord, Lord Kurios was the translation of the Hebrew word name for God. So Adonai would be also a Hebrew word translated as Lord. So when you said Jesus is Lord, you're, you're saying Jesus is Yahweh. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he did things that were the uh, prophetic calling card for the Messiah. He could be identified. They emphasize his death, the death on the cross, his resurrection and appearances, and his future uh, appointment to be the judge of the living and the dead. And the response is to believe in Jesus, to believe in who he is and what he did. It's the proclamation of the Lord's death in the Lord's table. Who is Jesus, the humanity of Christ, without sin, and his work on the cross, the person and the work of Christ? And repentance is turning toward to God for forgiveness 
and for life. And that's seen in these passages where repentance is mentioned in 18, and I don't see how you see repentance to life as being repentance from sin or remorse from sin. It's not in the passage or in the context. Uh, Acts 11.20, proclaiming the good news again about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the object. He's the content of the message. Acts uh, 15.19, we see a summary statement made to the um, to the apostles when Peter uh, and Paul come back and they're having to deal with what are we going to do with these Gentiles now that they're coming into the church. And the summary is, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's the word epistrepho. It's not metanoia, but it's similar. All of that brought us to an understanding or focus on Galatians. Now, Galatians is not written like other epistles with a an opening where Paul is praising them for certain good things that they are doing, thanking them for the way he sees God's work in their life. Uh, that doesn't happen. He goes right for their juggler. He is extremely unhappy with the fact that they have uh, changed the gospel message. And he starts off with his very brief uh, introduction, salutation, in verses 1 and 2. And then he gives uh, the standard greeting, grace to you, charis, comes out of the way that usually Greeks would greet one another. And it, um, and then peace is shalom in Hebrew, and that would be how the Jews greet one another even today. And so he is combining these in a unique way to emphasize a doctrinal point that we get grace and peace only from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives this brief summation of what the gospel is. He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father. And when he uses that phrase, gave himself, the, the English preposition for translates the, the Greek preposition, who pair. And when you wanted to talk about somebody doing something for somebody in place of somebody as substitute, you would use this preposition plus a genitive noun. And that's exactly what we have here. Uh, who pair, tone, Hamartion, Hamon. So, on behalf of the sins of us, or on behalf of our sins, or in our place. So that and uh, there's a second preposition, Perry, that are the two prepositions of substitution. So it's very clear in the grammar that it, Christ is dying in the place of sinners, and He gave Himself for our sins. Then we get into the meat of the problem in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Paul is astounded. He's heard what's happened. Now, we're going to see a map in a minute. This was where he went in southern Galatia uh, in his first missionary journey. And then when he gets to Antioch of Syria, there's two Antiochs. Okay, we're going to... They're near... uh, Antioch, which is in southern Turkey, and then he's going to be going back to his church, which is Antioch in Syria. 
And when he gets back there, he hears that these Jews had followed him and had convinced the Galatian believers that they really didn't have it all by trusting in Christ. They needed to also be circumcised. It's sort of like the modern Pentecostal gospel. You don't get it all at the cross. Salvation is a two-step procedure in some Pentecostal groups. Those that came out of a Baptist group, it's a three-step. So it all depends on whether you're doing the Pentecostal two-step or three-step, but you don't get it all at the cross. You have this post-salvation event that they call the baptism of the Spirit, Spirit and experience, and that's when you get sanctification, full sanctification, they'll say. So it's a two-step process. Well, the ancient world, it was you get circumcised, and you're going to have this, then you're going to be fully saved. So he says to them, I am, I marvel, I am surprised, stunned, astounded that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. God the Father being the one who called them to a different gospel. And it's the Greek word heteros. People who are heterosexual are of different sexes. And so that's where we get that word. But when you mix everything together, stir it up, and it doesn't like milk, and it no longer separates into milk and cream, that's called homogenized from homo, homos which means different of the same kind. So that's what he says here. He says, you departed from the grace of Christ to a different, a categorically different gospel. What does that tell us? That there's a true gospel and a false gospel. That there's one gospel that is correct and others are false. And he says, which is not another alas of the same kind, but there are some who trouble you and pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, I have a friend who frequently uses the word pervert, but the real perverts are those who pervert the gospel of Christ. Almost ought to use that word and restrict it to that use. So they pervert the gospel. They change it. They transform it into something that it's not, no longer good news. And then to exaggerate this in a very hyperbolic statement, Paul says, but even if we, meaning apostles, or an angel from heaven, even if you get a supernatural vision like Muhammad or Joseph Smith or uh, Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy or any of those who started various cults, uh, even if you claim to have an angel or one appears to you, he says, if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than, the, than what we have preached, evangelizo, what we have evangelized you with, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. That's an extremely strong word. It is almost as if Paul would say, let them go to hell. He is very upset about this. And then he says in verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again. I'm going to repeat myself in case you didn't get it the first time. If anyone preaches any other gospel, and so in that phrase he's using the verb evangelizo, if anyone evangelizes you other than what you received, 
let him be accursed. So twice he says, let him be anathema. And then in verse 11 he says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me, and there he uses evangelion and evangelizo together. If there's an, uh, if the gospel is preached by me, if it's not according to the gospel preached by me, it's a gospel according to man. It's human viewpoint. It's just going to be another works gospel. And you look at every other religion in the world. They're all to get into nirvana, to get into uh, heaven, to get into wherever you see things going to just lose yourself into the universe. It all requires some form of goodness in works that you produce on your own. And then Paul says, For I neither received it from man, it didn't come from a human being, its source was not in human beings, nor was I taught it. In other words, he's saying, I didn't even get it from other apostles, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that takes us back to Acts 9, where Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's an unbeliever. He hates Christianity. He has been responsible for uh, incarcerating uh, men and women and children, separating families, causing the execution and death of numerous uh, Christians, accusing them of blasphemy. And suddenly the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him, and he is... Uh, struck blind and he responds what must I do Lord he immediately recognizes who Jesus is and that's his conversion on the spot now the question is he's talked a lot about in these verses about proclaiming the gospel and not preaching a different kind of gospel so how do we find out what the gospel was that Paul taught them. Well, we go to Acts. Because in Acts 13, it describes him uh, going to uh, Pisidian Antioch up here, not Syrian Antioch over here in the yellow on the right lower right corner, but Pisidian Antioch up here. See, on his first missionary journey, you can follow the blue line here. He and Barnabas and John Mark left Antioch, went to Cyprus. Then they went up here to Pamphylia, where they went to uh, Perga. Then they went north to Antioch, and then they hit these three cities, uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and back again, and then uh, back to Antioch. So they were uh, traveling that route. So you might want to turn to Acts 13 at this point because this gives us the details. So this begins in uh, verse 14. Verse 14. You have another episode in Cyprus that is described down to verse 12, but I just want to point one thing out in verse 12. After he had had this confrontation with Elymas the sorcerer and had um, uh, challenged him and cast a demon out, then the proconsul who is observing all of this believed. 
doesn't say he repented of his sin and believed. It doesn't say he did anything else. It just says, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching about the Lord. So then they they set sail from uh, from Paphos down here on the uh, western coast of Cyprus, and they head up to uh, Pamphylia. That's in verse 13. And they go to Perga, and then they go further north in verse 14 up to uh, Antioch in Pisidia. So they have done, they have t- give, given this clear gospel. Let me skip ahead here. Uh, I got ahead of myself. Let me summarize what we learned in, in uh, Galatians. We learn, number one, Jesus is defined briefly in one verse as the one who died as a substitute for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So there's content about who Jesus is. It's not just a sort of believe in Jesus. And as I said the other night, you can believe in Yeshua, my plumber, but he's not going to get you anywhere except maybe to dry land. Um, So this is Jesus who died for our sins. So he's clearly given specificity. A lot of people assume that when we're talking to people in our world that they know who Jesus is, and they don't. I remember when I was in the seventh grade, and maybe it was around Christmas. I don't really remember the context, but I do remember the teacher telling us that she was telling uh, the Christmas story and mentioned Jesus, and there was a kid in the class who raised his hand and said, Who's he? And that was a long time ago. So this is it's today it's much, much worse. The second thing we learned learn there is that there's a gospel that's different from the one Paul preached in Galatians one six. And that third, anything other than what Paul preached is not the gospel, and one who proclaims it is accursed. So it's very clear that the gospel is a very narrow set of propositions. You have to understand who Jesus is as the God-man, and that he died as our substitute on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins, and that he rose from the dead. All of those elements seem to be there all the time, that he's the one who gives us life, he gives us uh, reconciliation, he gives us forgiveness of sin, he gives us justification. Uh, you don't have all of those in any one message, but you have one or two of those in various messages. So then they go to, in um, Acts 13, they go to Solomon's, They preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews in Acts. That's back in uh, 13.5. That's earlier in Cyprus. And that's kat angelo. Now, the reason I went to that verse is because this is another form. Evangelizo or evangelion, it's an E-U. The U is pronounced like a V. It's E-U, and then it's the same Word, it's the uh, verb form of the noun where we get angel or angelos. So angelo is to announce something. The one who announces something is the messenger, the angelos. Uh, 
So when you put uh, some sort of prefix in front of angulo, it's emphasizing something, but it all has something to do with announcing something. If it's evangelizo or evangelion, it means to announce good news. If it is katangelo, it is just to announce or declare something, and sometimes it's even translated as, as preached. Here they are announcing or proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. That was always Paul's plan. Then we'll skip down to verse 13, 14 that I've already talked about. Uh, they came to uh, Perga, uh, and they went to Antioch and Pisidia, went to the synagogue, and sat down. They didn't interrupt anybody. They're very polite. They're very considerate. There is a way of doing things in the synagogue. And they went in and sat down, and there's a definite procedure. And in that procedure, they would read from the daily uh, parasha, which is the reading from the uh, scripture, from the law, the Torah, and the prophets. And then the rulers of the synagogue, understanding the protocols, uh, recognized they had visitors. And so what would happen if somebody came, they would give them uh, the opportunity to say something if they wished. And so they gave them the opportunity, uh, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, don't say it. So they're given the opportunity to speak. So again, we see this is way up in the sort of central modern Turkey, and it is not this uh, Antioch o- over here. And so Paul begins to talk to them. He stands up, we're told. In verse 16, he stood up and motioned with his hand, and this would be a formal way in which they would gain the attention and the focus of the audience. And he addressed them as Israelites, men of Israel. Remember, they separated the women from the men. So he's addressing those who are in front of him, the men, and the women are up in uh, or the balcony or in a side room. He said, men and um, men of Israel and you who fear God, that would be the proselytes. Listen, and it's interesting here because he what he does uh, between verse 17 all the way down to verse uh, 25 is he sets the historical background. So in those verses, he is simply explaining who Jesus is, and he ties him into the promise of the seed, like what I did in the Christmas specials this year. He starts off with uh, Abraham, and he talks about how God, the God of Israel, chose our fathers. That's a, almost a technical term for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and exalted the people. And he goes through the uh, choice of Abraham, implying the Abrahamic covenant, or reminds them of that. It talks about they were strangers in the land of Egypt. They were slaves. They were delivered from slavery. Uh, and he says, but God brought them out. Essentially, that's what he's saying. And with an uplifted arm, that is a metaphor for power or strength. Uh, with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. 
And then he goes through the 40 years in the wilderness in verse 18. He goes through the conquest in verse 19, summarizes the 450 years of judges in verse 20. And then in verse uh, 21, he talks about the people's desire for a king. So God gave them Saul. Verse 22, he says that God then raised up David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, uh, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. And this alludes to the Davidic covenant. From That's verse 3. From this man's seed, according to the promise, that's the promise in the Davidic covenant, God raised up for Israel a Savior, a Savior Jesus. So this is uh, what we're seeing in verse 23 and 24. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up Israel a Savior. Jesus, Yeshua means Savior. And then verse 24, after John had first preached, and what was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he used the word metanoia, or its verbal equivalent. Uh, he says, um, at first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now, where does this come from? I've alluded to it once already, but here I wanted to put these verses up on the screen. This is where the repentance idea to a Jewish audience comes to bear. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, God tell, uh, uh, speaks through Moses, now it shall come to pass when all these things have come upon you, when you have disobeyed me to the point that I've taken you out of the land and scattered you among the nations, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you called them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. So they're going to be scattered throughout the whole world. And you return or turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Because verse 30, verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 1, that's disobedience. But now they're going to turn or return to the Lord. It's the word at the bottom, shuv, which means to turn or return. When you return to the Lord, your God, and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, that doesn't take place till the end of the tribulation when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But the point here is it's that phrase, when you return to the Lord. Now, epistrepho is a, cl a close equivalent to shuv. It means to turn. That is used in several passages in Acts. Other passages use the word uh, metanoia, to repent or to turn or change your mind about God. But it's the same thing. With a Jewish audience, you're reminding them of this. When the God has promised that when we turn back to him, then he's going to restore all the Jews back to the land. So when repentance is mentioned with that Jewish audience, that's what that is uh, alluding to. So we get back to Acts, Acts chapter 13. And then we go down to uh, verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word or the message, the logos, 
of this salvation has been has been sent. That's the gospel message, the word of this salvation. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. They, they ignored the prophecies. They ignored the promises. But they have been fulfilled in him. And he says, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. That was the prophecy. They would be condemned. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. So what do we have here? The message includes the death of Christ. Now, when they had fulfilled, that is, they, in terms of the Pharisees and Sadducees, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, that is, Christ, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So we have the death and the burial. But, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. So there we have the resurrection. And he was seen. There were witnesses. It wasn't something mystical where they just had a feeling. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you good news, that promise which was made uh, to the fathers. And this is Evangelizo. We declare the good news to you. We are evangelizing you, giving you the good news that the promise which was made to the fathers has been fulfilled. Verse 33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written uh, in the second psalm. So he goes to second psalm, which indicates his sonship. Now, Christ was always the Son of God, but there are different points when God declares his sonship, and at the resurrection was one of those points. Another was at his baptism. This is my Son, in whom I'm uh, well pleased, here at the resurrection. And the Psalm 2 is actually talking about when he defeats his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon, and in Psalm 2-7. And then we get into... Uh, verse 34, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So he connects it back to the prophecy, messianic prophecy in Isaiah 55, 3. And then he quotes another psalm in verse 35, which is Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, a prediction that he would not stay in the grave, but he would be resurrected. So, as you go on, you look down at verse 38. <coughs> Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, emphasizing the humanity of Christ, this man is proclaimed to you the forgiveness of sin. So what's the emphasis here? It's on forgiveness of sins. And then if you look at verse 39, it says, And by him everyone who believes is justified by all things from, uh, from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So what's the emphasis in, in what you get from believing in Christ? It's forgiveness and justification. So there are different things that get emphasized in different presentations. So what we see when we break this down is that 
And the presentation of the gospel, Paul set the context so they would know about the promises about the Messiah and the prophecies, and he would contextualize Jesus within the history of those promises and prophecies for Israel. And he did that in seven verses from uh, verse 17 uh, down through verse uh, 23. And then he started talking about uh, the message of this salvation and to Jerusalem and the role of the Pharisees and Sadducees in opposing him and actually bringing about the fulfillment of those prophecies. And then he gets to the core of the message, which emphasizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in verses uh, 28 to 30, that he was put to death by Pilate, verse 28, laid him in a tomb, verse 29, God raised him, verse 30. Then you have these other prophecies quoted to show fulfillment of prophecy, and they are from these passages in Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 55-3 and Psalm 16-10, and, uh, which is also quoted by Peter in Acts 2-27. So those are all present and then when we skip down to verse 38, we read, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached, katangelo again, is proclaimed to you the forgiveness of sins. And what's the condition for justification and forgiveness? He who believes. There's no mention of repentance. You don't have to repent from your sins. You're turning to God who and his promise of salvation. So what do we learn about the gospel? First of all, when you're giving the gospel, you need to understand your audience to some degree. So don't be afraid to get to know people. In fact, you shouldn't befriend somebody just for the purpose of giving them the gospel. I have a very close Jewish friend one time. He said, you would no longer be my friend if I thought that the only reason you're my friend is to give me the the gospel. And that's true. He's my friend because he's my friend. And I hope that one day he will trust in Christ as Savior. So you have to know your audience. Befriend them if you can. Now, some people go so far in evangelism methodology that they call it friendship evangelism that you really uh, have to make friends with anybody you're going to give the gospel to. That's good, but that's not always the situation that you're going to have. Second, you have to know the supporting prophetic scripture. You have to memorize scripture. You, and you have to memorize the references to Scripture. How many times have I or you said, oh, I know it's where it's in the Bible somewhere. I just don't remember the reference. So one of the things when you're memorizing Scripture is to quote the beginning of the verse, like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16, you've got to open the door and close the door. That's how we were taught as kids. So you have to know these passages and where they are. Now, if your memory's not all that good, then you ought to write notes in the top margin of your Bible so that you can thumb your way through your Bible and find those verses and have them underlined on the page. That, that helps. So we have to know the supporting prophetic scripture so that we can go to those key passages and talk about them. Third, summarize 
the history from Abraham to David and David to John the Baptist, it contextualizes it. And, and Paul did it in like seven verses. He didn't take an hour or two hours to do it. And it just helps people understand Jesus didn't pop up out of nowhere on Christmas Day, on the first Christmas Day. He was the fulfillment of prophecies going back at least 4,000 years. And God, in Galatians 4, four, Paul says that in the fullness of time, he came forth. Fourth, it emphasizes the Davidic line. He's talking in a synagogue. So that's part of what we hear in this passage. He's talking to Jews, men of Israel, sons of Abraham. And they know these promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David. So he emphasizes that Davidic line and the sonship of the Messiah, which is mentioned in Psalm 2-7. Then um, fifth, I, double four, I doubled the four, didn't I? Uh, fifth should be, we've got to fix that num- numerical order. Fifth is death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, the work of Christ. So the previous ones to emphasize who he is, his background, his descent. He's a son of... Abraham, you look at Luke's genealogy, he starts with Adam, and then Abraham, and then uh, David. So you have the death, burial, and resurrection, which is the work of Christ. So it's the, who is Jesus? The person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. Again, it's the same two things that are in the elements of the Lord's table. And the results... In this passage, forgiveness of sins and justification are mentioned, and the condition is believe. And believe means to accept it as true, and and you're relying upon it. You accept it as as a as a truth. You're not saying, "Oh, I believe the Bible says Jesus died for my sins." You're saying, "I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that." You know, I, I can say I believe that Darwin taught that human beings descended from monkeys. But I don't believe that human beings descended from monkeys. There's a difference in those two statements. And what the Scripture says is that we need to believe Jesus died for our sins. So it's interesting. We started with Galatians and the false gospels. And then and when you get into Galatians chapter 2, Paul is, having to, is explaining the essence of the gospel that he proclaimed. Notice in uh, 1 Corinthians, it was I, to, to uh, proclaim Christ and him crucified. And Galatians, when he goes through the, the first two chapters, really focus on uh, correcting legalism with the gospel, and then chapters 3 through 6 deal with correcting legalism on spiritual life. But he lays down the framework for the gospel, and he arrives at verse 16, and he says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That is how he is focusing the message of the gospel. It's not by works of the law. 
It's by faith in Christ Jesus, who he is and what he did. And only by that are we justified. And that is the core of the gospel. Now, we have one more important passage that we need to go through to uh, fully deal with all the key passages on the gospel. And that's going to be next week. We'll talk about 1 Corinthians 15, which is focused on resurrection. But there's a lot that is said in the 50-plus verses of 1 Corinthians 15. So we're not going to cover the whole chapter, just about the first 20 verses or so to understand uh, what is going on in the way that is set up and structured. After that, we'll have one more question, but that will be addressed as we go through Philippians. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to just look at your word and to be reminded that over and over and over again, it's believe, 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 believe the promise, believe in who Jesus is, that he is the only one who could come and die on the cross as our substitute. He is the God-man. He died on the cross for our sins, that by trusting in him we have everlasting life. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel, which unfortunately confuses too many people who are dead set on working on it. But you gave it as a free gift, and for that we just rejoice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.